0: This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, friends. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode is on principle number 10, which is trust. And the question associated with principle number 10 is, how do I live not knowing outcomes. I think this is a great topic because if you're like me, we like to have some certainty, or at least we like to feel like we have a sense of control. And so learning to live not knowing outcomes and to practice trust as part of a daily principle that we're practicing is a great thing to be reminded of and to return to when we get caught up in uncertainty or the unknowing. In his book, A Gentle Path Through the 12 Principles, Dr. Carnes says, recovery teaches us and sometimes forces us to trust. We learn to trust others. We learn to trust ourselves. We learn to trust an ongoing process of renewal. We give ourselves over to uncertainty, freefall, and the care of a higher power. This is not always a warm and fuzzy experience. Sometimes we trust only because we are desperate or have no other choice. At times, we're gonna be anxious or frightened. At times, life will seem to be falling apart around us. But in recovery, and as we practice the 12 principles, we're learning to live with our fear and anxiety and to practice courage and trust in the face of them. Meanwhile, our inner observer has learned to stay mindful and alert, steering us away from reactivity And focusing us on the next right thing we need to do. Dr. Karn says the emphasis on doing is essential. Trust is active, not passive. It emboldens us to speak up, to take a stand, to make decisions, and to move forward into a future we can neither foresee nor control. It prompts us to take one leap of faith after another. Alfred Adler said about trust, he said, trust only movement. Life happens at the level of events, not of words, trust movement. We experience trust in the present, but the actions that build trust can ripple outward for months, years, or centuries. A single act that builds trust can open the acceptance or empowerment that can change someone's life for the better. That person in turn can love and empower others. That initial caring act can engender an ongoing cascade of healing events. Recovery typically creates such a cascade. Maybe we had a painful and difficult life. Maybe we struggled for years or even decades with addiction. We may have come from a long line of addiction. But the work that we do in recovery or therapy or any change process that we undergo may spare our children and their children and their grandchildren much of the suffering that we endured. Through our own recovery, we may give future generations a chance at a better life. Or maybe not. We can never know what life has in store for another person, even if that person is our child or a loved one. Sometimes our kids make the same mistakes that we did, or even worse. We can't force others to learn from our mistakes or our struggles. We can, however, be wise to how our actions and our decisions and words impact the next generation and the generation after that, and so on. When we operate from this long view or this big picture, we're much more likely to help others, support others in their own process and their own journey And we're more likely to be a safe person for ourselves and for other people. Now, I think when we talk about trust, and and I will say I did an episode on trust a while ago, maybe over a year ago, I would say. And in that one, we got into all the different aspects of trust, whether the different dimensions of trust, and even talked about a mathematical formulation for figuring out trust. So if you want to learn more about that, it's called the trust equation. And go back and look for that podcast episode where I talked about the trust equation. I'm not going to repeat that for this episode. But I do want to focus on how important it is to trust ourselves. Because I believe that if we cannot learn to trust ourselves, it's very difficult to learn to trust other people. If we can't trust ourselves, we tend to have a lens that makes other people and the world unsafe. So I wanted to focus this episode just talking about the importance of learning to trust yourself. Now, sometimes we lose trust in ourselves after we make a mistake, or maybe after someone criticizes us harshly or constantly. It can feel more difficult to make decisions when we can't trust ourselves because we fear that we're gonna make the wrong decision. Or we might be more prone to criticizing our own decisions after the fact, after we make them. Often this mistrust of self comes to us directly. Maybe we grew up with parents who didn't trust themselves, where honesty wasn't valued. I think a lot of times our parents teach us that honesty is important, but it may actually not be practiced in their actions. We may have been in situations where we had to survive or get the grade or pass this class, pass the test. And in order to do so, we engaged in untrustworthy behavior. We may have learned that authenticity was not appreciated or accepted. And so we found it difficult to be ourselves around other people. And we started to live a life of dishonesty. Or maybe we trusted others when they weren't trustworthy. And we wondered how we could do that, how we could trust somebody who wasn't actually trustworthy. And maybe we found that one lie was enough to question everything that we thought was true. Starting a change process can seem very bleak at first, whether that's change from living in addiction, recovery from betrayal trauma, or changing dysfunctional family systems. As we move into this change process, we come to understand a paradox. First, we must have a vision of what we want our future to look like. And we have to live one day at a time. We have to allow our future vision to pull us through the change process, which is not always easy. And we have to be focused on the next right step in front of us. Now, when I'm working with a new client, I first want to know in one of the first or second or maybe third sessions that we have, I want to know what they want their future to look like. I think that one of the most common reasons that clients come to therapy is to understand why they are the way they are or some story along those same lines. And if possible, I think they're coming to therapy with this question of, can it be different? Can I be different? So in some of those first sessions, I want them to lay out their vision of their recovery as they most earnestly desire it. Now, initially, this futurizing may feel artificial and unreal. Clients may doubt their ability to change, or they may doubt their worthiness about deserving good things. Sometimes it's hard to take their focus from their current problems or their current chaos and get them to look at where they're going and what they want a future to look like. But I find that when we take the time to focus and they start to think specifically about what they want, what they're working towards, it can clarify a lot of issues and provide necessary perspective we start to get curious, which starts to lay out the path that we need to go down to create change. And our purpose in doing this is to help sort out both the long-term and the immediate goals of therapy, of recovery and of change. Now, one of the key concepts that Dr. Carnes talks about in his book, Out of the Shadow and Facing the Shadow, is the addictive system. The addictive system is a proven model that addicts have identified with for decades. Plus, it shows how addiction is a self-perpetuating system, which is what makes it so difficult to stop. A system is a series of interactions between component parts, which virtually guarantees that things will repeat. Now, over the years, as I've worked in the addiction field as a mental health professional, I also, often find myself wondering if what we know in the addiction field is much more applicable to the population on a whole than we give a credit for. I also think that what we know about the numbers of people struggling with addiction isn't quite telling us the big picture or the whole story. So talking about the addictive system, the addictive system has component parts. As systems need to have. The addictive parts are first core beliefs and these core beliefs tend to center around issues of unworthiness and this belief that your needs will go unmet. That you can't rely on other people and that if people really knew who you were they wouldn't accept you. Now also in these core beliefs there may be false beliefs about how the world works there may be beliefs about sex there may be beliefs about gender about men about women which not only are inaccurate but they have imprisoned the person by limiting their options of thinking so if you think of this addictive system kind of like a cycle the next piece in this from false beliefs come impaired thinking And all of our impaired thinking, when I'm talking with clients, impaired thinking can be tied back to these false beliefs. Impaired thinking is when our thinking has become distorted in some significant way through such things as denial, delusion, minimization, justification. From false core beliefs and impaired thinking, we can easily drop down into the addictive cycle. And the addictive cycle is preoccupation, followed by rituals where we work ourselves up into acting out. They kind of help create this trance-like state or this mind-altering state of being, which is necessary for the acting out behavior. Then we have compulsive behaviors. We have the acting out in the addiction, whatever that looks like. Sexual compulsivity or other addictions. And then that is followed by despair usually the individual after acting out, feels some sense of shame and guilt, all of which creates unmanageability, which basically confirms the beliefs in your unworthiness or the false beliefs in your belief system. So the addiction cycle is part of the addiction, obviously, but the addiction cycle is housed within a larger addictive system. And without this addictive system, the addiction cycle isn't happening. Now, if it's a true system, it's also reversible. A gasoline engine, for example, turns over one way, but it can be easily reversed. In the early days of cars and boats, this was often the case in order to achieve reverse. Human systems are no different. When the addictive system is reprogrammed, it becomes a process of renewal. Instead of dragging us down, it helps us reclaim our excellence and our unique abilities. Addiction researchers have pointed out for years that people of great achievement actually access their brains the same way addicts do, with only slight variations. The human system wants to be successful, and it's designed to continue that growth. When that's happened, it's called a recovery system or a renewal system. Transforming from the addictive system to the recovery system requires us to let go of false hopes, denial, minimization, and delusional thinking. The challenge is to think through and identify what it will take to make this transformation from the addiction cycle or the dysfunctional system running our life to living a life empowered by the recovery system. This process can be transforming. It's also generally painful. The steps will mean change, and change often means loss and dislocation. In the recovery system or the renewal system, it also has components that interact with each other and guarantee that it will repeat. This system starts with new core beliefs in which we accept that we're worthy of love and of having our needs met, even our sexual ones, that we're worthy of pleasure and good things in life. New beliefs have emerged, which are reality tested, and they provide more options for us. And our thinking starts to become empowered, honest, and clear-sighted. So we have these beliefs based on our worthiness and our inherent goodness and value and that leads us to empowered thinking. Now from there instead of dropping down into preoccupation or obsession we can drop down into focus. We can focus on those things which matter the most with little attention given to the unimportant or the distracting. This also has a ritual system but new rituals emerge which deepen our awareness and help us to access our own wisdom. Then we move into zone behaviors in which we're at the very best and we are working to be in this zone as much as possible. Now, I often tell clients, I don't know that we're working to live in zone, but we are frequently visiting there and we're able to draw from ourselves our best. Core to our efforts is a commitment to something bigger than ourselves. And then this is rewarded. Happiness and success ensue because we're doing what we're best at and we're doing what means the most to us. We feel affirmed because our activities and our story now match our experience and our integrity. The outcome of the renewal cycle is resilience. We have margin and reserves when challenges occur. Grief, hurt, and disappointment only deepen our resolve and add depth to who we are. Now, I talk about the addictive system all the time. I think it's, a, it's an amazing story, this ability to transform from one dysfunctional system into a system that's renewed and empowerment To me, it reminds me of all of those stories about the underdog, those movies where it's about the underdog and we find ourselves rooting for them, and all of a sudden we see great things come to pass. This story about how things were and how they are now, I think is such a powerful story. And I think it resonates with everybody. But like I said, while this process can be transforming, it's also painful The steps mean change, and change is hard because they often mean loss and dislocation. I faced this recently where from my, what I would talk about, you know, my addictive system was my family of origin. We were living with an addict in our household who had many addictions, and all of the chaos and unmanageability that followed from those addictions and the behaviors that are associated with addiction and the, the characteristics of families where there's addiction, all of that fit my family. And like I've said before, and we, we didn't know, right? We didn't know what we didn't know. And I think for me, as well as my siblings, I have five siblings, I think we have all done what we can to transform from the life that we knew, the dysfunction, the chaos, the unmanageability, false beliefs, impaired thinking, we've done what we can to transform that into a recovery system. Or at least I like to believe that we've done that. And so sometimes it's painful for me when I see as an adult, and and not really see, but when I experience that old system playing out again, And it kind of it takes my breath away and I my body remembers my body remembers exactly how this felt even though I don't usually live much of my adult life in that space when it happens when it reoccurs in my adult life I remember it I remember all of it and so like I said this this happened recently and the addictive system was right in my face. It was right before me. And, you know, I'm I'm not going to talk with one of my siblings about the addictive system because they don't care, right? They don't want me. They're all coming to me as a therapist. They don't want me to talk about what I know because we just experienced something. And so I can't express what I know. And what I know is that, My family, I and I think again, I think it starts with my parents, you know, like a a couple weeks ago, this is before this happened, a couple weeks ago, my two youngest daughters were in the kitchen. And I may have mentioned this, my youngest daughter has a friend who's been living with us for about a year now. So those three were standing in the kitchen. I was also in the kitchen, but they were kind of talking and they started talking well I walked in and I heard them talking about their grandma which was my mom is who they were talking about and they were telling this friend stories about grandma and about the time that I walked into the kitchen I heard my one daughter say well what you need to understand is Susan which is my mom's name my kids like to call adults by their name and not titles They said, what you need to understand is Susan doesn't really know how to love other people. And my one daughter was like, yeah, Susan did not love me. And so again, listening to your kids talk about your family dynamics is a very interesting experience if you haven't experienced that. And I found myself wanting to protect my kids and also protect my mom. And so I said, grandma loved you. And They kind of looked at me and they were like, well, kind of like, I mean, the way that grandma loves and I was just like, you know, I I was feeling this inside and I was just like, "Okay, okay, I I cannot correct their experience. I can't tell them that they didn't experience what they experienced. And they had these experiences with my mom, which is what they were talking about. And so, you know, a couple of days later, my kids were talking to me about my family and my parents and they were asking me like, "Why why did your parents stay married for so long?" So my parents were married for 28 years. I now, I just in March of last year, no, actually March of this year, March of 2021, my husband and I celebrated our 28th anniversary, wedding anniversary. And I remember having a conversation with my mom when she was contemplating divorce. And she was saying to me like, but we've been married 28 years, kind of as a way of like, how could I end that? And I said to her, mom, I, I think what would be even more tragic than the two of you being married for 28 years is if you were married 29 years. And I remember that conversation. I think it was difficult It was difficult for me to say it. I think it was a difficult thing for my mom to hear. And so sometimes my kids will ask me, like, how, why, why did your parents stay married for this amount of time for so long if they didn't love each other? And I don't know. I don't know the answer to their question. You know, I've said to them before, maybe on some level they did love each other. That would surprise me. Because that's not what I witnessed. And that's not really how I experienced either of them. And so that would surprise me. But I think what I do know from watching my parents' interactions for the first 23 years of my life was that maybe maybe I can allow that somewhere underneath all of the abuse and all of the violence and all of the hurt and pain, maybe they did love each other. But what I saw is that it was easier for them to be abusive with each other than it was to say, I love you, or I miss you, or you mean so much to me, or I'm hurting. And I think as siblings, That's something we all know in our bones. That we can, it is easier for us to be abusive with each other than to say, hey, I'm hurting. Or you mean a lot to me and I'm just feeling really insecure in our relationship right now. And I think after experiencing this recent incident, that in my family, what we learned growing up is if that we aren't acting out in anger or abuse. We opt for coexistence. We shared bedrooms with each other. We all had to share bedrooms with each other. We grew up in a four-bedroom house, maybe around 1,500, 1,600 square feet. We grew up in a small house with eight people. And so we all had to share bedrooms. But we didn't have to get to know each other. And so we can get together as families today, but I don't know that we have conversations that really matter. The conversations we have aren't relevant to the pain we each carry. They're not necessarily conversations that bring us close together in intimate, vulnerable ways. But we're funny, we're witty, and we know how to coexist we also know how to turn on each other. And this is the addictive system. When it was happening, I said to my husband, this is the addictive system. I talk about it all the time. And yet here it is playing out in my life again. And this has played out again and again and again. And so after this experience, I had this need. I wanted to talk to my kids, I've talked to all three of them. And the fourth one is, on a vacation with her boyfriend, and so I'll talk to her when she gets back. But I wanted to talk to them about the addictive system because they're part of it too, and it touches them. They were born into an addictive system because I know it so well, and their aunts and uncles know it so well. And this system is well-worn. It's always there, and we can fall into it. What I don't know is I was talking to my three girls this past weekend. What I don't know is if we can talk about it in our present. I don't know if as siblings, we can talk about the hurt, the scars, the insecurities, and the things we needed to hear but never did. Or if we just simply move on. My brother told me, Last week, that I need to stop living in the past. Well, I I don't think that I live in the past. But I think the past touches us all in our present day. Do we feel our relational insecurities and our deep need and just turn away instead? I wonder if the hurt and the pain is so visceral, so known in our bodies, that if we hold it, if we allow it to surface, it will always be destructive. I hope that we can learn to show up for each other, that we can learn to feel without moving to protect. I think we need to acknowledge that despite how successful we are, how driven we've been, or how well we think we're doing, the hurt is right there. And we can engage with that hurt without realizing it. This incident last week with my brother really shook me. And it made me question myself. And for a moment, well, not for a moment, for a day, for maybe two days, I was revisiting false beliefs and impaired thinking. Now, fortunately in my life, I have two good friends that I called and who showed up for me and who know me and could say no that's not you and who reminded me to trust my truth and that i could stand in my truth whether other people saw it whether my family knew it or not when i was talking to them after that experience with my brother it felt like if i stood in my truth and didn't back down i would lose I would lose them, I would lose the relationships I I deeply want to be a part of and want to be accepted in. It also felt though that if if I did back down, I would lose myself and I would lose everything that makes me me and it wouldn't just be me that loses, it would be my kids, the grandkids I don't even have my nieces and nephews would lose and I don't want them to lose in Sigmund Freud's psychoanalytic theory of personality he talks about ego strength ego strength is the ability of the ego to deal effectively with the demands of the id the superego, and reality those with little ego strength may feel torn between these competing demands while those with too much ego strength can become too unyielding and rigid. Ego strength is what helps us maintain emotional stability and cope with internal and external stress. Now, according to Sigmund Freud, personality is composed of three elements, the id, the ego, and the superego. I've been talking to my clients about this a lot the past week because I had to revisit it because of this experience. So the id is made up of all the primal urges and desires, and it's the only part of personality present at birth. It wants to do what feels good. It lives in the moment, unrefined. The superego is the part of the personality that's composed of the internalized standards and rules that we acquire from our parents, our families, from society, It is part of the personality that pressures us into behave in moral ways. And then finally, the ego is the component of personality that mediates between the demands of reality, the urges of the id and the idealistic, but often unrealistic standards of the superego. So the id compels people to act on our most basic urges. The superego, on the other hand, is striving for adherence to idealistic standards. The ego is the aspect of personality that has to strike this balance between those baser urges, moral standards, and the demands of reality. When it comes to mental well being, ego strength is often used to describe an individual's ability to maintain their identity and sense of self in the face of pain, distress, and conflict. Now, researchers have also suggested that acquiring new defenses and coping mechanisms is an important component of ego strength as well. For people who have high ego strength, they tend to share a number of essential characteristics. They tend to be confident in their ability to deal with challenges. They're good at coming up with solutions to life's problems. They also tend to have high levels of emotional intelligence and are able to successfully regulate their emotions, even in tough situations. Sounds like they're living in that recovery system, that renewal system. An individual with solid ego strength approaches challenges with a sense that he or she can overcome the problem and grow as a result. By having a strong ego strength, The individual feels that he or she can cope with the problem and find new ways of dealing with struggles. These people with ego strength can handle whatever life throws at them without losing their sense of self. People with good ego strength tend to be resilient in the face of life's difficulties rather than giving up in the face of an obstacle. These individuals view such events as tasks to be mastered and overcome. And even when very difficult events or tragedies occur, those who possess ego strength are able to pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and move forward with a sense of optimism, knowing themselves. For people who have low ego strength, on the other hand, they view challenges as something to avoid. In many cases, reality itself can seem overwhelming. Individuals with not enough ego strength struggle to cope in the face of problems and may try to avoid reality through wishful thinking, substance use, and fantasies. Think about the addictive system. Low ego strength is often characterized by a lack of psychological resilience. So in the face of life's challenges, those who don't have ego strength may simply give up or break down. Now, when it comes to developing ego strength, or a positive sense of self, a trust in self, I've said before on this podcast that the absence of negative doesn't always translate into positive. And I think that a large part of whether or not we develop ego strength has to do with the environment in which we grew up in. Now, I, I will say, I, I do think it takes few positive people to spark ego strength and to start that developing. And I've shared before in different episodes, some of those people who were critical at times in my life that made a big difference. As I said, the addictive system starts with the belief system. Usually this addictive system that's composed of the belief system, impaired thinking and unmanageability starts and is reinforced over and over for years before addictive behavior begins or dysfunctional behavior or patterns is replicated. Now with trauma, there's confusion, confusion between self and other. Left unprocessed, this trauma inevitably leads to a faulty belief system and faulty beliefs about the self, about the world, and about the self in the world. Often with trauma, there's an over-identification with the perpetrator. Goes something like, you're treating me bad. Therefore, it must be because of me. I must be bad. And that belief is internalized. So the challenge in recovery, the challenge in therapy, the challenge is to externalize the responsibility and to place it where it belongs. Now, maybe this child who's become an adult knows in their mind that it's not my fault that I was abused. That doesn't make sense that it's a child's fault if they're being abused. But that's not how it feels. There's a confusion between what I may know or understand and have knowledge about as an adult and how it feels inside me. So this fundamental confusion of responsibility or what can be referred to as defectiveness or a lack of ego strength, I'm the defective one, I'm the bad one, it's my fault, is, can be a very pervasive confusion for clients who have experienced trauma. And for clients with complex trauma, they're often confused on multiple levels of belief and impaired thinking. And I say this about clients, I have also, I will say, have also been a client. And I've also had to work through the confusion that comes from complex trauma. Some of the levels of impaired thinking and false beliefs have to do with safety, responsibility, value and worth, and personal power. So when we're looking at safety, if your sense of safety as a child was compromised, You never knew when you were gonna get hit. You never knew when you were gonna get yelled at. You never knew if somebody was gonna be home or not, if they were gonna remember to pick you up or not. There's this chronic sense of uncertainty, unpredictability. Now, fast forward into the adult years, you continue to be vigilant, maybe hypervigilant about that same kind of uncertainty and unpredictability long after those childhood conditions have passed. So there's these past-present confusions where we get caught up in what Pete Walker, I'm going to talk about him in a minute, he talks about these emotional flashbacks where I'm in my present, but I'm having a flashback from my past. And that gets confusing. Safety is about the conditions of safety in the past versus the conditions of safety in the present. There's also... An area of confusion around power and control or the ability to make choices, good choices on our own behalf. Now going back, thinking about developmental trauma as a kid, if you think about being a kid, kids have very little control on a good day in their life about the choices that are made for us, the things we can do, the things we can't do. A lot of that we don't have power or control over. And so in part, we're rendered powerless just by virtue of the fact that we're children and that there are adults in charge and in control most of the time. Now worse, if you're being abused as a child, you're powerless, you're helpless. You can't really do anything about what's happening to you. And if we've had too many victimization experiences, what we come into adulthood with is that we continue to feel and act as though we're powerless and that bad things keep happening to us and we have no control over them. Now the fourth and final level where there can be this confusion about self and other is about personal value and worth. Abuse and neglect make any child feel worthless and despondent. Often a child who is abused will blame themselves. Often it feels safer to blame oneself than to recognize that this parent that is supposed to keep us alive is unreliable or at worst dangerous. Shame, guilt, low self-esteem, and a poor self-image are all common among children with complex trauma histories. And that sets us up for this addiction cycle within a larger addictive system. I believe that many substance and process addictions begin as misguided, maladaptive reactions to parental abuse and abandonment or neglect. Early adaptations are attempts to soothe and distract from the mental and emotional pain of complex PTSD. Now, Pete Walker is a social worker, and a psychologist in California. He has several books that he's written. One is called Complex PTSD, From Surviving to Thriving. Another one is The Tao of Fully Feeling. And then he's got a book entitled Homesteading, In the Calm Eye of the Storm. He talks about how do we know if we're recovering? What are the signs that we know that we're recovering? So along with being able to identify the different components of the recovery system or the renewal system that gets put into place and these components interact with each other in a way that sets it up for continual repeat, which is what we want in recovery, where we have a shift in beliefs, empowered thinking and resilience. Pete talks about that effective recovery work leads to an ongoing gradual reduction of emotional flashbacks. Again, those emotional flashbacks are this confusion between the past and the present, between self and other. Over time, we become more and more proficient at managing these flashbacks and alleviating unnecessary states of activation. This in turn results in flashbacks occurring less often, less enduringly, and less intensely. He says another key sign of recovering is that the critic begins to shrink and lose its dominance of the psyche. As it shrinks, the user-friendly ego has room to grow and to develop the kind of mindfulness that more readily recognizes when the critic has taken over, which in turn allows us to more readily disidentify form or fight against our perfectionistic and drasticizing processes. Another sign of recovering occurs as a gradual increase in our ability to relax, to resist overreacting from a triggered position. There's an increase in our ability to use our fight, flight, freeze, and fawn instincts in healthy, non-self-destructive ways so that we only fight back when we're under real attack. We only flee when odds are insurmountable, only freeze when we need to go into a acute observer mode, only fawn when it is appropriate to be self-sacrificing. Another way of describing this is that we have good balance between the polar opposites of fight and flight. We can vacillate healthily between asserting our own needs and compromisingly acquiescing to the needs of others. We can balance the polar opposites of flight and freeze, which in their moderate manifestations look like a balance between doing and being, between sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system arousal, between left and right brain processing. Advanced recovery correlates with letting go the salvation fantasy that we will never have another flashback, that our past will never touch our present and moving into an attitude of accepting the inevitability of a modicum of flashbacks. This attitude then allows us to easily recognize and quickly respond to them from a position of self-compassion, self-soothing, and self-protection. This is when we strengthen ego strength and when we know we've developed trust in the self.